Welcome to Beyond the Benchmark, EFG's weekly podcast. My name is Daniel Murray. I'm the Deputy CIO and Global Head of Research. And with me today, I'm really fortunate to have Tobin Marcus, who leads US policy and politics research at ISI. Now, Tobin's got a really interesting background. He graduated from Brown University with a degree in the interesting combination of physics and political science, which I don't think you see very much of. And uh, perhaps um, more relevant to our conversation today, he was... Uh, four years um, a a staff in the Obama-Biden administration and actually worked as uh, Biden's economic policy advisor. So I'm sure we'll get some juicy insights into uh, Biden's thinking on the world in a few minutes. And uh, subsequently, he also worked with Biden on his 2012 re-election campaign. So uh, really fortunate to have Tobin here with us today, particularly at a point in time when politics is really at uh, the centre of uh, investors' minds. So... uh, Tobin, uh, perhaps we could start off. Why don't you give us a quick view as to what it was like working for Biden? Absolutely, uh, and uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, he is a uh, a little bit of a politician of a bygone era, very much a retail politician, uh, very much a kind of creature of Washington. You know, I think, interestingly, in terms of differences between him and the typical presidential model that you see in the U.S., most of the past presidents uh, have been outsiders in some way, Trump in very obvious ways, but even before that, you know, Obama was a bit of a political outsider. Uh, Bush and uh, and Clinton were both governors coming from uh, far outside Washington with their own kind of cadres of people who were coming in with some agenda to sort of move the party, uh, whether the Democratic Party or the Republican Party in a particular direction. Um, Biden is much more of a party leader in a kind of a European sense that he's sort of leading uh, from the, the kind of plurality of views of the Democratic Party uh, in a very coalitional way. Um, and I think that goes back to the way that he's always operated. And when, when I was working for him, he was always very focused on taking other people's views seriously, you know, sort of questioning people's judgment uh, or their, uh, or their uh, opinions, but not their motives, um, which uh, I think very much goes back to the way that he's talked about uh, bipartisanship in his um, in his campaigns, and I think in his style, in both thinking about and communicating about economic policy, and in his economic policy decision making, he really is very relentlessly focused on ordinary people. In meetings with him, he would constantly be admonishing staff to speak English if they, you know, kind of came spouting acronyms. He truly hates acronyms. Uh, he he will uh, was fond of kind of um, chiding people that spending money is not an accomplishment when someone would come in kind of bragging about, well, we have this $300 billion bill to do X, Y, and Z, but in a way that seemed, um, you know, pretty detached from the actual impact it was going to have on, uh, on individual people and households. Um, in some ways, you know, I think that the, uh, that, um, wisdom, because I think that that really is uh, a smart and important kind of aspect of what makes for effective political, uh, communication and economic policy decision-making in the U S, um, has been, uh, I would say, a little bit lost in uh, the the kind of democratic uh, fiscal sausage making process of the past year. Uh, it is, of course, a very divided and fractious party that he's presiding over now. Um, and you know, I think some of the uh, sort of distinguishing features of his primary campaign in terms of having those focuses on, no, no, we need to talk about things in a way that makes sense to people and not, you know, sort of, um, you know, follow the, uh, the kind of ideological wing, wing lead of the party's wing uh, all the way down the road um, has gotten uh, a little bit lost in the shuffle. Certainly seems like it's a tough environment in US politics, obviously coming out of Trump and even within the Democrat Party at the moment, uh, it feels like it's, you know, it must be difficult to try to get a consensus view on stuff. And of course, with uh, certainly from the outside looking in, the US as a nation seems highly polarised. 
But, uh, you know, one thing that the world does seem pretty united on at the moment is uh, the situation in Ukraine and the opposition to it, which is, you know, it's interesting how these things can unite. But perhaps that's a, you know, convenient segue into asking you, what do you think about the situation in Ukraine and uh, uh, which direction do you think we're headed in? Yeah, I mean, from our perspective, uh, it looks like we're mostly in for a slog. You know, we've been looking since, you know, really since the, uh, I I think the turn was kind of a week and a half ago when the initial Russian offensive bogged down, uh, heading into a weekend when many experts were predicting that Kiev would likely fall. And over that same weekend, we saw the very, very rapid coalescence by the Europeans in particular around a much stronger set of sanctions than anyone really thought was on the table going into the crisis. I think since then, um, we have uh, expected that we would be in for pretty grim and protracted campaign where, uh, you know, the, the cycle of escalation that we talk about is sort of in the face of this unexpectedly effective Ukrainian military resistance and this unexpectedly decisive Western economic response, Russia uh, kind of feels that it has no choice but to double down and turn to increasingly brutal and indiscriminate topics, and that in turn provokes further uh, military, diplomatic, and uh, and economic responses from the West. Um, and from our perspective, I think we're still very much in that dynamic. For the most part, over the past you know ten days to two weeks, we've been kind of following along that path rather than the path itself shifting dramatically, uh, even as, of course, we've seen, you know, markets swing wildly uh, uh, on on commodities, on on equities and sort of various reactions that we've seen. Um, But, you know, I think we're pretty skeptical of the likelihood that um, that the the peace talks are going to provide a particularly credible off ramp. uh, And it, it looks like we are, um, you know, the sort of incentives are aligned to keep us on this quite, uh, quite grim path for, for quite a while. Um, I, I don't see a lot of uh, near-term uh, realistic off-ramps that are, are presenting themselves. We saw, uh, I think it was yesterday, that uh, the U.S. withdrew its offer of uh, planes for Poland to allow Poland then to pass their MiGs over to the Ukra- Ukrainian um, military uh, because it was potentially viewed as antagonistic towards Russia and a, a way of sucking in NATO. Do you think there's any risk that NATO will eventually be sucked into this conflict? Yeah, I think that that tail risk is very real. I do think that the uh, the entire uh, incident around the Polish planes and the conversation going back to the week before that, uh, you know, sort of within NATO, between the US and Poland, uh, underscores how much apprehension there is about this and how uh, diligent, uh, you know, Biden in particular, NATO in general, are trying to be about not presenting provocations, not allowing NATO to be sucked in if there's not a, a really, really clear and unambiguous, um, you know, sort of Article 5 need for NATO to respond. Um, you know, the political conversation uh, in the U.S., driven in, in, in many ways by Zelensky, uh, has continued to feature lots of calls for imposing a no-fly zone, you know, pretty loose talk about things that would be very escalatory. And I think that the administration has been quite, um, quite uh, you know, disciplined in rejecting all of that and explaining why it is that they don't want to do it. So I don't think that there's going to be a kind of discretionary escalation from the NATO end. But we definitely think that there is a risk that NATO gets sucked in 
based on Russia kind of coloring outside the lines. And I think that, you know, this planes incident illustrates the kind of risk that we've been worried about there. I think as, you know, even in the absence of planes um, uh, or other kind of acceleration of the, the kinds of material that's being provided to uh, Ukrainian fighters, you know, now the military, possibly in the future and insurgency, um, it's very easy to envision a situation where a NATO kind of arms supply convoy or, or weapons depot in Poland, in Lithuania, um, gets struck by uh, by Russian troops who are, you know, sort of making the argument that they're protecting Russian forces from this lethal aid that's being provided to um, to Ukrainian uh, fighters in the country. Uh, and in that case, I think it's genuinely not obvious what the NATO response is. Again, I think there's a lot of... Um, uh, effort not to get drawn in, but at some at some point, you know, a, a provocation could reach the point where it feels untenable not to respond somehow. Um, and similarly, you know, you can imagine cyber attacks of a certain severity posing a similar risk. You can imagine Russia, you know, forcing the the Bosporus Straits to get access to the Black Sea after Turkey's cut that off. Um, various kind of you know edge cases. So that is definitely something we're worried about. It's not uh, not something we expect. It's not the case, but I think that tale is very ill and, and very grave. Right, well, let's uh, certainly hope we don't end up in, in that sort of world. Perhaps looking at the other end of the distribution, uh, you talked about de-escalation, and you know, we've seen little glimmers of hope over the past few days in terms of a little bit of movement on the Russian side in terms of their demand and some movement uh, from Zelensky and the Ukrainian government in terms of what they're willing to accept. Is there a sort of particular path that you can see to the escalation that's more likely than others? Yeah, I mean, I think we are now at a moment where it's conceivable for the first time that you could have credible talks start us on a path towards de-escalation. Uh, and I think the reason for that is that neither side can really look at the situation on the ground and feel confident that they are on path to success. Um, it's possible that this uh, window, such as it is, will be fleeting if Russia does keep, you know, sort of pouring forces into the country, although their Western forces seem pretty well committed at this point, uh, or if they find themselves making making more progress on the brutal sieges of, uh, of Kiev and other cities or country, um, you know, maybe they at some point feel like they've picked up enough momentum that uh, that that peace negotiations are, uh, are less promising in the future. But for now, you know, it is at least conceivable that these various sort of openings to compromise could work. The tricky thing, I think, is what kind of security arrangements are supposed to exist in, in this negotiated peace? Um, you know, I think the territorial claims seem resolvable. Uh, you know, our read is that Zelensky seems fairly open to uh, explicitly ceding Crimea to Russia, seems pretty open to uh, recognizing some kind of independent uh, status for uh, the two oblasts and the Donbass, um, you know, with with some questions about the the sort of occupants of what had not been separatist occupied territory in those provinces until until the invasion. Um, but the Russian demand for total demilitarization uh, strikes me as quite unappealing uh, to, to the Ukrainians. It's hard to look at this experience and think that things are going to go well in the future if you voluntarily sort of relinquish your, your defensive military capacity to resist a similar attack in the future. Um, and so figuring out, you know, is there some set of structures that can be worked out, some set of demilitarized zones and, you know, troops, specified troop forces stationed in certain places and triggers for uh, for various kinds of things. Like all that is resolvable in principle and has done been done before in, in other conflicts, but um, is very, very, very tricky and very time consuming. Uh, and even when, you know, you can point towards some level of shared interest in de-escalation, 
actually resolving those questions to everyone's satisfaction is really, really, really hard. In particular, because it's paired with the question of, you know, how far do sanctions get rolled back? What kind of relief is the West prepared to offer Russia? Um, which, you know, even if uh, even if Ukraine is on board with offering broad relief as a way of, of, of creating an off-ramp um, that is uh, both you know, politically and morally and, and strategically quite fraught uh, for the U.S. And, uh, and European countries that have, have really ramped up that, that pressure. Yeah, a very tricky situation indeed. And of course, uh, thankfully, these situations don't happen all that frequently, but right. uh, it does mean that we're just facing this enormous wall of uncertainty at the moment. But I think, you know, with the situation in Ukraine at the moment, um, we sometimes forget that there's a whole other world out there. And the US, of course, is involved in uh, foreign policy initiatives around the world from, you know, Afghanistan to China. Um, how should we be thinking about the Biden administration's approach to foreign policy? We know that Trump was uh, looked very much more inwardly in terms of his foreign policy approach. But what about Biden? Yeah. So. You know, Biden is an interesting one because he's very different from Trump in some ways, similar to Trump in other ways, and I think very different from kind of past Democratic president in uh, in in other ways too. You know, I think the the biggest difference between him and Trump is his commitment to multilateralism. I think he at heart uh, he does sort of think of himself as a statesman and think of interpersonal relationships among uh, among leaders, particularly among leaders of Democratic nations as being a really, really, really important nexus for uh, for kind of foreign policy and, and, and geopolitical progress um, and, you know, to a somewhat lesser extent, multilateral institutions. Um, he is, you know, his kind of central theme on foreign policy these days is this kind of clash between democracy and autocracy. I think that notion of let's kind of multilaterally bring to bear all of the sort of similarly democratic countries with similar values and try and create that coalition to um, resist the rising power of China resist aggression by states like Russia um, is is very much how he thinks about things, and that notion that you know democracies are are in it together to some extent is a huge point of difference from um, from Trump, who obviously was much more willing to you know kind of uh, uh, provoke uh, various conflicts or, or try and drive a harder bargain with um, with with. America's European allies and so forth. Um, that being said, I don't think it's right to understand him as being sort of creature of the Washington foreign policy consensus, um, which tends to lean quite hawkish, tends to be very welcoming of American intervention um, uh, in, in a sort of global policeman capacity. But I think going back to uh, when I was working for him in the Obama administration, one of the, the clear things that set Biden apart in that context, for example, when we were talking about, you know, what do we do in Afghanistan? Like, do we... Um, we needed to formulate a new a new strategy early in Obama's first term. Biden was, I think, by far the most skeptical senior administration policymaker of the recommendations of military commanders. You know, he spent a million years on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He feels like he's been around. He's, you know, returning to the conversation about outsiders. He's not someone who just sort of showed up with an economic reputation from managing a state as governor, but not a lot of foreign policy experience. Um, and so, you know, I think he tends to, to be less willing to um, uh, kind of reflexively take the word of and take the recommendations of, um, you know, military commanders and uh, sort of Washington foreign policy graybeards, um, which is how you get things like the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, which, you know, obviously the execution of that turned out very, very poorly, but the decision to do it itself was a big kind of divergence from um, the, the consensus that, you know, in many ways, I think is, is kind of salutary, the willing to, willingness to uh, to not just sort of go along with the momentum of uh, of keeping American, you know, sort of forces committed, 
you know, anywhere and everywhere uh, in response to the slightest provocation. So, um, you know, I think in light of that, he's going to try and focus on things that really matter. I think on the one hand, he's going to try and focus on um, this sort of uh, uh, sort of global fight for democracy that he talks about. And then on the other hand, I think he's going to try and, uh, and sort of keep America's powder dry for what he sees as being our genuine um, core interests with Afghanistan not rising to that threshold at this point. Um, and, you know, I think in, in light of the pivot to Asia that's been talked about in uh, in D.C. for, uh, you know, going on 20 years now, um, you know, I do think that the, the consensus within the administration is that that's where the real kind of core national security questions for America are going to be answered in the years ahead. And, you know, it's interesting in the context of foreign policy, the past couple of days has seen the unlikely scenario where the U.S. is holding an olive branch out to the likes of Venezuela. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't have thought that would have happened uh, even just right. as recently as a few weeks ago. So these, uh, these, you know, the sort of chessboard can change very quickly in terms of foreign policy. Right. But, you know, you, you touched on Asia there and the pivot to Asia, that um, a part of that policy which I believe was introduced under the Obama administration was a pivot away from the Middle East. And um, in, in current circumstances, uh, perhaps with oil being top and center of many people's policy agendas at the moment, you know, the Middle East is going to become an important region. How do you think uh, the Biden administration will handle that? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think one thing that we have already seen and will probably see uh, more of, given how the past week has gone from the Biden administration, is a questioning of America's traditional alliances with uh, Saudi Arabia uh, in particular, and that, that sort of axis of America's traditional Middle Eastern allies in particular, um, or, or in, in general. Um, it is, that's another classic kind of DC foreign policy consensus thinking kind of a thing. And Biden has been much more willing to be confrontational to Saudi Arabia on human rights issues, uh, just kind of less deferential in general. I think there's interestingly been some partisan polarization around the sort of Mideast piece of America's foreign policy in particular, um, where uh, America's support for Israel, which used to be very kind of broadly bipartisan, has become a much more politically complex uh, question with a lot of pushback from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Biden is not really on board with that. I think he's he's still um, on the relatively you know sort of pro-Israel wing of the Democratic Party. Um, but you know the conservative political leadership in Israel has not been particularly welcoming of Democratic leadership. Um, Netanyahu is sort of uh, notably. Uh, uh, provocative towards uh, Obama um, with kind of coming to, to the U.S. and um, giving that uh, address to a joint session of Congress that he did, uh, sort of coloring outside the understood lines there. Um, so, you know, it's an important region that uh, Biden certainly has no intention of neglecting, um, but, you know, I don't think he's going to feel like he's locked into the, the traditional approach to, you know, who does and doesn't count as our ally and uh, sort of continuing to, to reflexively support the countries that we've always supported and, um, and hope that they'll kind of scratch our back too, um, given the, the uh, I think, quite striking lack of um, helpfulness from, from Saudi Arabia in, in the current crisis. Perhaps we can just turn back to Asia again uh, quickly. So, you know, this pivot towards Asia, we, you know, when we think about Asia, clearly China is the major player out there. But of course, the US has uh, friendly relations with lots of other countries. There's the issue of uh, Taiwan. And uh, this week, indeed, one of China's responses to the crisis was to warn the US against trying to create a Pacific version of NATO. Um, so how do you think Biden will uh, deal with the situation in Asia? Is this, you know, is it going to be more akin to Obama or more akin to Trump? Uh, I think 
sort of somewhere between, you know, I think that the 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 Obama pivot to Asia uh, always was a little bit more uh, more rumored than than fully executed, um, and uh, I think that there certainly is commonality with the Trump approach in that the the confrontational stance towards China is certainly going to persist. I mean, obviously, we've seen the tariffs on China uh, have lasted up to today, uh, and I think that the future of rolling those back is going to be more of a muddle than some people appreciate. Um, uh, which you know, I think not everyone would have predicted coming into this administration that, that was going to be uh, sustained. So you know, I think that the kind of political winds have fully and permanently shifted on uh, on China in particular, and that all signs point towards confrontation there. So we're going to continue to see that. Um, but you know, I do think that we will see uh, a, a kind of calibrated version of a more Obama-like uh, sort of multilateral engagement approach. Um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership itself has become politically toxic in the U.S., so I don't think that there's any realistic um, prospect that the U.S. is going to formally try and rejoin CPTPP at some point uh, in the future. I think that's just off the table. But the, the same idea of U.S. multilateral engagement uh, to, to kind of you know line up our allies, create some uh, counterbalance to, uh, to China, deepen economic ties um, – is being reflected in this, you know, again, somewhat more more rumored than than uh, genuinely uh, uh, existing Indo-Pacific economic framework that that the administration is sort of starting to to talk about and starting to 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 discuss with um, with allies. Um, so, you know, I think that that approach of try, you know recognizing that we have deep interconnection with China, but uh, that it's going to exist within a frame of, of pretty focused strategic competition um, and trying to simultaneously deepen relationships with the other countries in the region uh, to not encircle China, but, um, you know, sort of create some uh, some counterbalance is what we're going to see. And, I, you know, I don't think that like a Pacific NATO is um, is in the cards, regardless of what what China says. I don't think there's any intention to, you know, establish sort of formal new security arrangements um, over there. I mean, the, the uh, agreement with Australia on uh, on on subs and the ensuing contretemps with um, with France, you know, of course that that was going on, uh, uh, and you know, I think those kinds of conversations will continue. Uh, you know, sort of um, more informal, more bilateral uh, security cooperation with with Pacific allies. But you know, I don't think that there's um, there is, uh, yeah, I think, an understanding of of China's concerns and uh, a desire not to kind of rile them any more than we have to. Well, uh, yeah, let's hope you're right. I mean, clearly, China has its own objectives in Southeast Asia with its sort of one, one road policy. And right. I guess the US has a need to try to counterbalance that in some way. Right. It just has, has to do it in a politically sensitive way. Right. Perhaps we could um, just go back to US domestic policy for the time being. Um, we saw yesterday that uh, we had this one and a half trillion bill that's passed by the House. Um, and uh, that really reflects policies that were in place last year. But how much more do you think the Biden administration will be able to get done this year? It's quite a divided house. There's infighting within the Democrats. Manchin obviously holds the, you know, the, the uh, pivot vote within uh, the Senate. So it's right. a complicated set of arrangements. How do you see yeah. that playing out? So, yeah. So, you know, the bill that was passed yesterday, uh, it's called the omnibus uh, an appropriations bill is basically just keeping the government funded and making some adjustments to funding levels kind of you know updating the allocation of discretionary government funding which again is just basic kind of year-to-year appropriations um 
so that we're not just continuing kind of leftover funding levels from the Trump administration. Um, some increases in military aid in there, um, uh, some increases in, in Ukraine aid. Um, but you know, for the most part, that is kind of an exercise in keeping the lights on. And it's a reflection of how hard it is to get anything done, um, that that turned out to be the you know, sort of sprawling mess uh, that it was with, of course, you know, a bill, 3,000 page bill being released at one in the morning and then a, a day's worth of, of disasters on Capitol Hill to get it through just the Democratic controlled house, the characteristic Washington process. Um, you know, looking forward, I think the one kind of substantive new piece of uh, of legislation that is very likely to get done is what gets talked about is a China bill in the US. This bill has had about five names now, um, but USICA is probably the thing that was best known as, um, which is uh, on the one hand, a big kind of strategic investment in semiconductors, uh, $50 billion for not kind of immediate, um, you know, kind of capacity building that's gonna be reflected next year, but sort of longer term uh, strategic investments to try and do some onshoring, try and do some light industrial policies, sort of recognize the need to, um, to you know, add some resilience and to do some delinking from from China, given what we've seen uh, over the course of the past couple of years, that is going to be again a very long and complicated process. But I think it's quite likely to get done and has strong bipartisan support. Um, I think we also are going to see a Supreme Court nominee confirmed. That's going to take uh, a lot of time in the Senate. And then, really, the only thing uh, else that has uh, a substantial chance of getting done that's meaningful. You know, they might get some small bills done on, you know, they, they did some work on postal service reform and those kinds of below the line things. But the outstanding question is still, will Democrats be able to get a reconciliation bill through? This would be the successor to what was talked about as the Build Back Better Act last year before um, before that fell apart right before Christmas as Manchin pulled the plug on it. Um, my point of view is that Democrats are still slightly more likely than not to get a very scaled down version of that bill through that looks much more like a big clean energy package than it looks like the sort of sprawling 15 topic social policy bill, including clean energy, but also including a huge swath of different family policy programs that was being debated last year. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the clean energy and climate pieces of that bill, which makes up about five or six hundred billion dollars, um, has been the piece that has the most consensus among Democrats going back to you know October, November, when the contours of the, the House Build Back Better bill started to come into focus. Um, and I think since then, it's only gotten more important to do. And I think that the importance of doing it has only gotten clearer to Democrats in Congress. On the one hand, the uh, nexus between Russia and fossil fuel exports, the sort of stark relief uh, into which has been cast, the European dependence on Russian fossil fuels in particular, um, I think is one tailwind for that bill. And then, you know, I think my, my personal view is that when Democrats get through the China bill and the Supreme Court confirmation and they sort of find themselves in May or June facing down, likely losing, you know, this being the last time that Democrats have unified control of Congress and the executive branch for seven years or longer, um, the, you know, sort of missed opportunity to do something on climate uh, will, will prove to be too much of a, um, uh, you know, a, a, a discouragement to just let the, the opportunity expire and that the, you know, ultimately there will be a sort of final uh, push to energize folks and say like, let's get the low hanging fruit done. Let's, let's do the thing that we all agree on, which is climate. Um, you know, it may include some, uh, some health insurance subsidies to sort of shore up Obamacare, uh, possibly prescription drug savings to sort of offset that healthcare piece. Um, certainly will, you know, if, if it gets done, will include uh, a decent swath of the tax increases that were proposed as part of the bill 
um, last year to pay for those investments. Um, lots of ways you could fall apart. Very hard for Congress to do anything. And you know, we've, we've sort of seen how difficult that process is uh, late last year. But I ultimately think that they have you know, sort of one more uh, push in them around uh, around clean energy in particular, where I really do think there's a lot of resistance to letting the opportunity expire, having accomplished literally nothing on the topic. Well, that would certainly help to bring U.S. policy more in line with uh, other parts of the world where green energy has been much more wholeheartedly adopted. Right. Now, a sort of separate part of Biden's plans uh, announced early last year involved massive upgrades to U.S. infrastructure, which, uh, you know, from an outside perspective, it seems always seems to me that there's this challenge with big U.S. infrastructure projects because it involves coordination between states and the federation, and that's difficult politically. Do you think there's any chance that we'll see a revival of big infrastructure spending in the US? Yeah, so you know the one thing they did get done last year, uh, legislatively, after the initial sort of flurry of activity in, in terms of pandemic response and the $1.9 trillion bill they passed in March, um, uh, you know, the Senate passed over the summer and then the House later in the fall, this bipartisan infrastructure bill um, which is currently in the process of spending out. So I don't think that there's more coming. I think that's you know sort of the signal achievement on infrastructure um, for the next while. Um, but it kind of got lost in the shuffle given how much attention there was to the sort of day-to-day ups and downs and sausage making around this bigger reconciliation bill. Um, but that's a quite significant piece of legislation, has a lot of money for uh, kind of important long-term things like lead pipe abatement, sort of still a huge public health problem and frankly, developmental and, and economic problem um, in terms of the sort of economic possibilities of uh, uh, of kids being constrained by that. Um, a lot of money for rural broadband, um, uh, you know, decent amount of money for, for kind of port upgrades and airport upgrades, along with the traditional tried and true, just like pump money into highways and transit. Um, so it'll spend out quite slowly. Your point about coordination, I think, is an important one. U.S. infrastructure spending gets a lot less bang for the buck than really anywhere else. Um, you know, there's $60 billion worth of money for Amtrak in that bill. But, um, you know, I uh, I ride the train to and from D.C. Uh, and, and New York quite often. Uh, so I, I have great fondness for Amtrak, but it is... Uh, I think there's sort of no amount of money that you can pump into the current management of that system that's going to give you, you know, sort of Europe-like high-speed rail performance or, or certainly Asia-like performance. Um, uh, it, it's just, it's very, very expensive to do things here for a, a combination of, uh, of basically kind of bureaucratic uh, reasons. So, you know, I don't think there's any, uh, it, it's not like a big bang that's going to change overnight the U.S. infrastructure picture. We're going to continue to have a lot of infrastructure needs, um, but I, I do think that's going to do uh, a decent amount of important kind of deferred maintenance on um, roads, bridges, you know, uh, kind of legacy infrastructure, uh, as well as building out some of these, um, you know, important and, and frankly overdue um, aspects of uh, not just our, our transportation, but our, our water and power and, and internet infrastructure too. Well, having uh, traveled on that uh, New York to Washington and check line myself a couple of times, I uh, can certainly understand the need to invest in infrastructure in the US. It's uh, it's an interesting line, I think is the way that you would put it. What about in terms of other sorts of spending? I mean, the situation in Ukraine has obviously brought back much more of a focus within Europe to defence spending, and really uh, it's amazing the speed with which that's turned around. Do you think this makes it easier to uh, get other spending through if it's accompanied by spending on defense in the U.S.? Yeah, so I mean, this is a dynamic that we saw reflected in that House uh, omnibus appropriations bill that went through yesterday. 
um, you know, the the big kind of food fight between Democrats and Republicans on, and I'll just say at the outset, appropriation stuff is more inscrutable than anything else that happens in Washington, which is saying something. So I, I will try not to get too deep into the weeds. But there often is this demand from Republicans that if there's an increase in what's called non-defense discretionary spending, that that's accompanied by an increase in defense spending. And so that sort of parity conversation was a big ongoing thing. It ended up that's basically where they landed. They increased both defense and non-defense spending somewhat, um, including some kind of emergency aid for Ukraine. So I don't think it's going to further push the frontier beyond what we've already seen reflected in that bill. There, you know, and and those increases are mostly at the margin. It's notable. A lot of policy thinking went into it. Um, but unlike in Europe, you know, we're obviously coming off quite a high base in defense spending in uh, in the U.S. compared to somewhere like Germany. So there's less. You know, there's uh, it would be inconceivable to double uh, American defense spending and, and nothing like that's in the cards. I think we're talking about, you know, sort of five, 10, 15 billion dollar increases at the margin um, as the sort of appropriate response. Um, you know, if God forbid uh, NATO actually gets sucked in, then I think there are subsequent conversa- conversations about funding for, you know, what they will often talk about is overseas contingent operations, like actual combat operations. Um, but uh, if we get to that point. Yeah, I think the kind of domestic fiscal implications of that are, are going to be far from uh, from the top of everyone's mind. It's uh, certainly a tricky issue. Now, you know, with the best will in the world, any uh, U.S. administration, uh, whatever they want to do in terms of um, their policies, they have to keep one eye on the elections that come up every two years. And we've got the U.S. midterm elections coming up soon. So, um, you know, what are your thoughts about uh, how that's likely to turn out and what the biggest issues are likely to be. Yeah. So, you know, I think that the most certain thing in the midterms, the Democrats are going to lose the House. And I think that's basically been a foregone conclusion going back to Biden's election. Um, it is always very, very, very difficult for presidents to avoid losses in Congress uh, for their party in their first midterms. The only two presidents who have defied that trend uh, of, of actually picking up seats in their first midterm election uh, were in 2002, George Bush, when he had 80%-ish approval following 9-11, picked up some seats in the House. And then before that, uh, you're looking at at FDR uh, in, uh, I think it was 1934. Um, so, you know, obviously a quite durable trend of some level of losses, and Biden only has a three-seat margin to spare in the House. So it was pretty inconceivable you know, once it was clear how narrow his congressional majorities were and that he was, in fact, the president, um, uh, it, it seemed basically inevitable the Democrats would lose the House. Um, so I think that's extremely likely to happen. There is some question about magnitude, but ultimately that doesn't really matter to um, to markets. I think that the losses may not be quite as big in the House as some folks might guess based on how weak Biden's polling has been, just because he's defending a pretty narrow majority anyway. So there aren't a bunch of like marginal Democratic pickups in red districts that are incredibly vulnerable. Um, And the overall set of swing districts has shrunk as there's been gerrymandering on both sides, which, you know, one of the effects of gerrymandering is is sort of the fight for partisan advantage. The other effect is just to create more safe seats and less competitive seats. And so it ends up the House uh, these days being contested on a narrower and narrower base. Um, So, you know, uh, there's, uh, again, could be a 15C loss in an optimistic case for Democrats could be 40 or 50 in a really, really pessimistic uh, case, but I think probably somewhere between them. The Senate at this point, probably given how bad um, you know the inflation outlook looks uh, and where Biden's polling has been, the Senate probably goes Republican. I think the Senate is better for Democrats than the House, just based on which seats are up. Um, 
And I don't think it's inconceivable that Democrats keep the Senate if, you know, again, inflation is, you know, high but not uh, completely out of control by the end of the year. We avoid recession. Labor markets stay stay fairly tight. You know, the Ukraine situation, um, you know, goes goes fairly well, so that people feel like we sort of responded in an appropriately tough way to to Russia and give Biden some level of incidental credit for that. Um, you know, I, I think that's uh, imaginable, but one way or another, Biden's facing divided government next year. The Senate matters for whether he'll be able to get appointments through if there's another Supreme Court vacancy, even if he just needs to, you know, replace the Treasury Secretary or that kind of thing. Um, but uh, from a legislative perspective, you know, the window is pretty clearly shut on big discretionary Democratic uh, uh, legislative, you know, priorities this year. Um, and, and we're back to divided government after that. Okay, well, I'm sure closer to the time, uh, we'll be all very closely watching developments. Another policy area that I think is really interesting is digital currencies and cryptos. And, you know, there was another, um, I think, executive order signed yesterday encouraging um, various different authorities within the US to start to look at this a bit more closely. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think basically what we're seeing there is a recognition by Washington that the space is overdue for some oversight um, and that it's well past time for DC to start getting its hand around a, an industry and an asset class that have grown exponentially in, in recent years. Um, the executive order itself, as you mentioned, is basically a bunch of directives to conduct studies, to develop strategies, to develop frameworks, sort of a plan to have a plan rather than a strategy per se, um, which frankly, it's probably appropriate, given that I don't think regulators uh, could necessarily tell you exactly what rules they want to write down tomorrow. Um, but it does mean that the impact is a little bit down the road. In terms of sort of what it, uh, what what direction it does point towards, like sort of once we actually get there, I do think that the lean of that executive order is fairly hawkish. The language in terms of how the administration talks about its policy priorities, um, even on the, the uh, policy uh, priorities that are, are so, sort of framed around the opportunities of crypto, sort of need for uh, continued U.S. financial leadership, the opportunities for innovation. You know, there's a lot of talk about risks in the course of doing that. A lot of the comments from regulators have been fairly hawkish, um, with Gary Gensler at the SEC uh, largely out in front on that. Um, so, you know, where there are judgment calls, I think that many of them are going to be skeptical of the industry. And I think the skeptics within the administration sort of largely won out over the kind of crypto enthusiasts in the crafting of that executive order. Um, so insofar as it, it points to a permissive regulatory landscape for the industry, I think that's mostly because regulators are behind the curve, not because regulators are proactively choosing to be permissive. Um, you know, that being said, the industry reception was very positive yesterday. I think they're looking at this as, you know, mostly an opportunity to engage. Crypto lobbyists are over the moon. Uh, you know, these sorts of um, take six months and do a study is a, a great thing to lobby on. Lots of opportunities for meetings with, um, with executive agencies. Um, you know, I think there was some relief, you know, uh, I, I think that probably represents sort of miscalibrated expectations in the first instance, since I don't think it was ever, um, you know, realistic that they would go much tougher than this. They, they were never going to be in a position to sort of roll out new uh, new regulations at this time. It was always going to be this kind of starting gun, and then we'll, you know, so we'll sort of figure out the trajectory um, from there. Um, and then the, the, I think the last kind of notable thing in that executive order is throwing the whole of the executive branch behind the effort to uh, study and, and develop and possibly eventually launch a, a digital dollar, central bank digital currency, sort of both indicating support for, for the Fed's fairly exploratory efforts, exploring what 
you know, explicit authorizing legislation from Congress might look like uh, and getting, you know, Treasury and, and other agencies to start thinking through um, what the, the implementation dimensions of that uh, would look like from various different parts of the federal government. Yeah, so, you know, very interesting area and, uh, you yeah, know, notable that uh, increasing number of Western governments and central banks are looking at this closely and the subject of central bank digital currency. Yeah. Perhaps we could just, I could just ask you uh, about Europe and uh, I suppose two questions, you know, do you think the current situation strengthens ties between Europe and the US, which, you know, had arguably been weakening a little bit over the past couple of decades? And uh, I'd just be interested in your take on European politics and, uh, you know, sort of how cohesive is Europe? Yeah. Uh, so, with the overall disclaimer that I'm, uh, I, I'm much more a, a creature of DC than uh, than a creature of uh, of Europe, and so I'm not as much of an expert on uh, on on all the internal dynamics on the European side. You know, I do think that the that we are seeing more cohesion between the the US and Europe. And I think that's sort of returning to the conversation about the divergences between Biden and Trump policy. I think the, the stance towards Europe and towards NATO is one of the big points of differentiation, even though they both have what you could call kind of isolationist tendencies on certain uh, dimensions, you know, have a shared kind of skepticism of China. The attitude towards NATO is very, very different. I think Biden believes a lot in NATO and believes a lot in in the U.S.'s, you know, bilateral and multilateral relationships with, um, with our European allies. Um, and you know, it's, it's hard not to think that, that there's a sort of fresh appreciation of the value of NATO, uh, certainly from the countries that are at kind of NATO frontier, um, uh, and, and also, I, I think, likely from some of the countries that have been, um, you know, of two minds about whether NATO membership makes sense for them uh, in the past, uh, with, with Finland being, you know, one of the notable examples there. Within Europe, you know, I think that there's the, the shift that we've seen, to some extent, with COVID, and then I think really strikingly quickly over the course of the past few weeks uh, is a really interesting and important kind of long-term geopolitical development, um, both in terms of, you know, in terms of fiscal integration, in terms of the European uh, sort of uh, re-embrace of militarization um, that we talked about, you know, from countries like Germany in particular, from the EU overall. Um, uh, you know, it's it, it looks to us like there is you know, a, a bit more of a coalescence around the EU as sort of full spectrum geopolitical actor in its own uh, in its own right, um, in light of what we're seeing happen here. Um, and so, uh, you know, e even the, just the, the sort of routine embrace of, um, uh, you know, sort of fiscal, not, not full fiscal union, obviously, but, you know, some level of, of kind of collective fiscal responsibility for things like abating Russian natural gas demand in the plan that was rolled out uh, earlier this week. I think a lot of things that would have been unthinkable um, to the EU uh, a few years ago, at the very least, would have taken you know months and months and months and months of discussion. Um, you know, are being approached in, in much more of a spirit of um, you know kind of common spirit and uh, you know the the need to to get things done um, than in years past. So I, I think that that's quite striking shift that we're very interested to see where it goes in the years ahead. And uh, perhaps moving on to a lighter topic, and uh, just before we finish up, perhaps you could give some advice for anybody who's thinking about entering the industry today. Sure. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I obviously am coming from uh, a little bit of a, a non-traditional background uh, for, uh, for, for, for folks at our firm, certainly. Um, you know, uh, so I guess I'll approach that in the spirit of, 
you know, for people coming out of the political world or, um, uh, or, or coming out of uh, DC, you know, sort of what they uh, ought to have in mind if they're thinking about finance. You know, I've been very struck by the, um, uh, the, the sort of difference in perspective between Washington people and, and market participants about what matters. Um, and I think that that's, you know, one very important set of lessons to learn is, you know, sort of where there's attention, where there are misperceptions, uh, because I think there's a huge amount, you know, certainly in terms of our conversations with uh, our global clients in Europe and elsewhere, uh, but also in conversations with market participants in the U.S., um, you know, misperceptions about how Washington works, what the kind of uh, incentives are, where things are likely to go, um, you know, who makes what decisions for what reasons. Uh, there's a lot of uh, light that can be shed. Um, and I think understanding, you know, what is and is not obvious to people who are coming from outside of this, um, you know, intricate insular machine that is the the U.S. government and sort of surrounding D.C. political system um, is, uh, uh, is, I think, uh, a really important thing. And then I think just in terms of, you know, in terms of my approach and uh, what makes for your kind of successful navigation of um, uh, of DC, and you know, and, and to, to some extent, you know, for for folks who are you know on the buy side and trying to make sense of these things, I think you know, really thinking through um, what are the incentives for people and what are the political incentives for people in particular is something that um, is uh, is often hard to do, and that the um, the muddiness of everything that happens in Washington is very easily lost. And there's a lot of, I think, tendency to kind of um, think about uh, fairly complex or sort of bank shoddy outcomes that are frankly beyond the capacity of anyone in Washington to, to plan and execute. And that an appreciation for how sort of imprecise and ad hoc uh, all the decision making in in Washington is um, a, you know something that uh, I continually find very important to um, to appreciate and and would uh, you know underscore to uh, to anyone who's who or stepping into a similar seat. That's great, very good advice, I'm sure. Tobin, thank you very much for joining me today on the Beyond the Benchmark podcast for EFG. Really appreciate uh, uh, your time and thank you for sharing your insights on the U.S. and its position in the world, and of course very timely given all that's going on in uh, in the Ukraine at the moment. And uh, for the listeners, thank you also very much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact your EFG salesperson and uh, we look forward to welcoming you to a future podcast. Thank you. <laughs>